Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A strange statue of a figure more monster than man. I don't think people knew exactly what they were looking at when they saw him walk into the ring. A series of photographs at the heart of a heated debate. It astonished people. No one had seen this before. And fossilized claws belonging to a monstrous beast. Those claws would have really been able to rip into its prey. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Los Angeles, California is known for the glitter and glamour of the movies. But one museum here highlights the grittier side of the City of Angels, the Los Angeles Police Historical Society. Inside, visitors will find artifacts highlighting the legacy of law enforcement, including machine guns, highway patrol motorcycles, and bomb-detonating robots. But there's one item here with a deceptively plain appearance. It is an innocuous cardboard box. But as novelist James Elroy knows, its contents are far from ordinary. Inside, small index cards contain names, locations, and information linked to a dark and tangled case that has puzzled this city's police department for generations. It's a quintessentially Los Angeles crime. And today, over 60 years since a gruesome murder stunned the LAPD and fascinated the American public, many still wonder, will anyone ever crack the case of the Black Dahlia? January 15, 1947. Los Angeles resident Betty Bersinger takes a stroll through her neighborhood. She passes a vacant lot when something catches her eye. She sees a pale figure in the vacant lot off to her immediate right in the weeds. She initially views it as the body of a man. Too panicked to get a closer look, Betty calls the police. And when officers arrive, they make a horrifying discovery. 
they find the nude, bisected, horribly mutilated body of a young woman. Not only is the woman's body cut in half, but a gruesome smile is carved on her face. It is the most stunning explication of misogynistic violence. The victim cannot be identified immediately. So a set of fingerprints are wired to FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And straight away, they get a hit. It came back that there was an FBI fingerprint card on her. She'd been arrested in Santa Barbara during World War II for underage drinking. That was how she was initially identified. The victim is 22-year-old aspiring film star Elizabeth Short. The murder of this beautiful Hollywood hopeful is so brutal that even veteran police officers struggle to make sense of it. The case created a giant level of moral outrage in the Los Angeles Police Department. They had to know why. In an attempt to find and stop the sadistic killer, the LAPD launches the biggest investigation in its history. Early on in the investigation, 300 detectives were involved in canvassing. As the massive manhunt builds, so does public fascination with the case, as reporters seize on every detail of Elizabeth's brief life. It's the horror of the crime itself, the public display of the victim's body, her status as a lovely young woman. It becomes a feeding frenzy. With the public hunger for sensational details of the crime growing, the press even gives her a nickname. Herald reporters learned that Elizabeth Short had a penchant for dressing exclusively in black. She had dramatically dyed black hair. He dubbed her the Black Dahlia. That moniker fans the flames of a media firestorm. The press understood right off the bat this is a hot case. The frenzy grew and grew. With new details emerging every day, leads begin pouring into the LAPD at a furious pace. There were thousands and thousands of tips that flooded the switchboard of LAPD. So officers create a system for tracking this torrent of information. Everyone who was looked at had a card filled out about them. Every bit of information possible to record was recorded because it might play out as having some significance somewhere down the line. As the number of leads grow, the number of cards soon swell to over 10,000. And the only surviving box of index cards is the very one on display here at the Los Angeles Police Historical Society. Other evidence includes anonymous letters sent to the police and members of the press by people claiming to be the Black Dahlia killer. When detectives sift through potential leads, a small handful of prime suspects begins to emerge. They figured it had to be someone that she knew and that their pre-existing relationship, perhaps a betrayal on her part, drove this man into a blind rage. One character of particular interest is the last person known to have seen Elizabeth Short alive, Robert M. Manley. Manley admits driving Short to the Biltmore Hotel on January 7, 1947, but denies killing her. And after taking two polygraph tests, he is let go. So investigators turn their focus to a different set of suspects, 
those who had the skills to commit such a gruesome murder. She was bisected. It appeared to be a clean bisection. They thought of physicians, veterinarians. All of that was bandied about. Two particular suspects fit this bill. One is Leslie Dillon, a 27-year-old man with experience as a mortician's assistant. Dillon had also sent a series of letters to a police psychiatrist, each one containing a disturbing level of knowledge about the case. But LAPD detectives can't place him anywhere near the scene of the crime at the time of the killing, and he is ruled out as a suspect. Then, in 1950, investigators identify an alleged sexual predator and physician who, according to one witness, spent time near the Biltmore Hotel, the last place Elizabeth Short was seen. His name is Dr. George Hodell. When Hodell is placed under surveillance, he is overheard saying that if he had killed the Black Dahlia, the police would never be able to prove it. And with no evidence beyond this suspicious statement, it appears that he may be right. But then, in 1999, Dr. George Hodell is once again offered up as a prime suspect by a member of his own family. In an explosive book, George Hodell's son, Steve Hodell, himself a former LAPD detective, describes finding photographs of a young woman in an album after his father died. The woman in the pictures, he claims, is Elizabeth Short. And Hodell goes on to claim that analysis of his father's handwriting proves that it was George Hodell who penned letters to L.A. newspapers, bragging of being the Black Dahlia killer. The theory has its supporters, but George Hodell's death in 1991 means we may never know. Today, over 65 years after Elizabeth Short's murder, it seems her killer may have taken the secret of his identity to his grave. Even James Elroy, whose lifelong obsession with the crime culminated with his 1987 novel, The Black Dahlia, thinks the case may never be cracked. We always and will always want to know who and why. We never will. And here at the Los Angeles Police Historical Society, the last hope of solving a mystery that continues to fascinate to this very day may still be buried somewhere in the contents of this humble cardboard box. A working iron lung that saved countless lives during a polio epidemic. Human skulls with curious injuries and bizarre malformations. And a saw used for some of the earliest amputations in medical history are just a few of the oddities housed at Chicago's International Museum of Surgical Science. But curator Lindsay Thiemann knows there is one artifact here with a story that's as strange as it is grotesque. It's about 18 inches high, 14 inches wide, and measures approximately 7 inches from the bridge of the nose to the chin. And although those proportions seem fantastical, it was actually made to scale. This gigantic painted plaster bust is of an extraordinary man who once captivated a nation. But who was he? And how did he come to look this way? 1940. The sport of wrestling is taking America by storm, and driving the craze is a unique wave of personalities and stars. There were villains and superheroes, and they put on a, a type of play in the ring to hold the public's attention. 
But on January 24th, the audience at the Boston Garden in Massachusetts is about to see a character unlike any other they've witnessed before. I don't think people knew exactly what they were looking at when they saw him walk into the ring. More monster than man, this mysterious figure fascinates and frightens the spectators in equal measure. People were gawking, standing on chairs. It was reported that many women fainted. He stands five feet seven inches tall, but his disproportionately large facial features make him unlike any person that has ever entered the ring. His face had very strange proportions. He had a massive jaw and very large nose. After letting out a ferocious growl, this intimidating and imposing wrestler takes down his opponent in just minutes. He calls himself the French Angel. And although his name doesn't match his face, his ogre-like appearance and quick victory turn him into an overnight sensation. He was something new and novel, and it was something people hadn't seen before, and so he was instantly very popular. The French Angel does not disappoint his newfound fans, going undefeated for an incredible 19 consecutive months. He would growl and sneer and parade around. He was feared by his opponents. But who is this man? And what is the explanation for his innocent and angelic-sounding name? And his monstrous appearance? It's 1940. A new wrestling star has taken America by storm. But at first glance, he seems more monster than man. Who is this strange figure? And how did he come to look this way? And why has he been nicknamed the French Angel? Russia, 1903. A healthy baby boy is born to French parents. He is named Maurice Tillet. And as he grows into a young boy, his childhood is carefree and ordinary. He was completely normal in his appearance. In fact, his mother called him the angel because he looked so sweet. But as this sweet-looking young boy grows into a young man, things begin to change. When he was 17, Maurice Tillet noticed that his hands and feet seemed to grow and become much larger. His brow and also his jaw became more prominent. Startled by his radically changing appearance, the young Tillet visits a doctor and receives some devastating news. He has a rare and irreversible disorder called acromegaly. It's caused in most cases by a benign tumor on the pituitary gland in the brain, which triggers excessive secretion of the growth hormone. At the time of his diagnosis, there was nothing the doctors could do for him, so he walked away knowing that he would most likely continue to grow and not knowing how that would affect his life. And as his features continue to change, Tillet realizes that his life will never be the same. He had aspirations of becoming a lawyer. There was a series of dreams that he wanted to pursue that he eventually found he couldn't accomplish in his condition. Tillet grows increasingly private and reclusive until one day when a chance meeting with a professional wrestler sets his life on a new and remarkable path. 
Maurice Tillet spends two years wrestling in France and England until World War II forces him to move to a country where he finds fame and fortune, the United States. The world of American wrestling was a place where he could be embraced, not just despite, but in fact because of the way he looked. Indeed, it's in wrestling that he finally finds his niche by cleverly crafting a new persona as a terrifying and monstrous villain. But in spite of his extreme facial features, Tillet's persona outside of the ring endeared him to wrestling fans. And in the midst of Tillet's immense popularity, one man in particular saw him not as a monster, but as a muse. In 1950, Chicago sculptor Louis Link befriended Maurice Tillet and made a series of plaster busts commemorating this wrestling legend. Link was interested in capturing his appearance, so he sculpted a few versions of this bust, and one of them has ended up here at the museum. And the sculptures capturing the grotesque visage of the French angel are made just in time. A few years after this bust is completed, the disease, which was the cause of Tillet's strange appearance, reaches its inevitable and tragic conclusion. The French angel, who had fascinated wrestling fans since his Boston debut, dies in 1954 at the age of 51. The cause is heart disease, a common symptom of acromegaly. His heart, like the rest of his body, grew larger and larger, and the stress of having to support his body was too much for it. With the French angel's passing, the world mourns the sudden loss of a beloved and one-of-a-kind star and honors him with a place in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. The general public later comes to know Tillet indirectly, when it's rumored that his image serves as the real-life inspiration for the animated ogre Shrek. But today, Maurice Tillet's legacy as a man who found fame and fortune despite a rare genetic disease lives on here at Chicago's International Museum of Surgical Science. Log cabins, antique farming gear, and two homegrown automobiles known as the Kissel and the Nash. These are just some of the rare artifacts on display at the State Historical Museum in Madison, Wisconsin. But according to curator Leslie Belay, amidst these quaint relics is an item that's linked to one of the state's darkest hours. This artifact is sort of a rusted, twisted, metallic form, and it looks like it's been through a disaster of some sort. In fact, this tarnished object is a remnant of a brutal act of terror committed by U.S. citizens against the American government. It was shocking to people that someone who was an American would do this to other Americans. Nothing like this had happened before in the country. So what role did this hunk of metal play in one of the most treacherous acts of domestic terrorism in the nation's history? And will the men behind it ever be found? August 24th, 1970. The University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a quiet morning in the state's capital city when police get a sinister, anonymous phone call. The police receive a call. Hey, pig, there's going to be a bomb exploding on campus in about five minutes. 
Moments later, a violent explosion tears through the center of campus. It looked like a mushroom cloud, like a nuclear bomb had just gone off. The worst of the damage is to a six-story research building known as Sterling Hall. The ground floor and basement, home to the physics department, have been completely destroyed. And when police search through the blistering wreckage, they find the lifeless body of 33-year-old post-grad student and physics researcher Robert Fosnacht. They found him dead in the hallway outside of his office. And four other people are gravely injured. Police officers comb the still smoking rubble for evidence and soon come across some unusual-looking chunks of cast iron, including the one now on display at the Wisconsin State Historical Museum. Investigators conclude that the fragments are part of an automobile engine. And they realize that this vehicle had been used as a car bomb. As detectives try to gather more information, a police officer comes forward claiming that he saw a light-colored Chevy Corvair fleeing from the scene. Coincidentally, shortly before the bomb went off, another officer remembers pulling over a vehicle matching that description. Four men were inside. Brothers Carlton and Dwight Armstrong and university students David Fine and Leo Burt. But unaware that the men could be linked to a deadly plot, he let them go. An action he would later regret. A check on the men's identities reveals that all four are thought to belong to a homegrown group of anti-war revolutionaries known as the New Year's Gang. In fact, one of the men... Carlton Armstrong is the gang's suspected ringleader, and he's already known by law enforcement for previous attacks against buildings, although not on the scale of Sterling Hall. And he was very interested in drawing attention to the anti-war movement through destruction of property. But why would this anti-war gang, whose stated goal is only to destroy property, not people, blow up the physics department and murder a student? 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One August night in 1970, a car bomb detonates on the campus of the University of Wisconsin in Madison. The explosion destroys the physics department in Sterling Hall, leaving one student dead and four others wounded. Prime suspects in the case are a group of radical Vietnam War protesters known as the New Year's Gang. But why would they target a university physics department and kill a student? Investigators soon come up with a theory to explain the attack. Sterling Hall wasn't just the site of the physics department but was also home to a top-secret U.S. military project known as the Army Mathematics Research Center. To the bombers, the Army Mathematics Research Center symbolized the ultimate target. Police suspect that the terrorists' crude bomb missed its intended target, which occupies the top floors of Sterling Hall. Their main flub in all of this was that they did not get to the Army Mathematics Research Center. They blew up the physics department. It is thought the suspects placed a bomb warning call to police in the hopes of avoiding casualties. But the death of a physics student turns the bombing from a violent protest into a heinous federal crime. It was the largest event of domestic terrorism in the country's history at that point. The FBI promptly places the four suspected bombers on their most wanted list. Over the course of a painstaking seven-year investigation, three of the men are arrested and brought to justice. But the fourth suspected bomber, Leo Burt, remains at large. He's still on the FBI wanted list, and he still has an active poster So if you know where Leo Burt is, (laughs) I'm sure the FBI would love to know. And some 40 years after the Sterling Hall bombing, this disfigured chunk of metal sits at the Wisconsin State Historical Museum as a chilling reminder that a suspected terrorist is still on the loose. Richmond, Virginia. This city was the capital of the southern states during the Civil War. And today, its former White House is the home to the Museum of the Confederacy, an institution that houses nearly 15,000 relics from the war, all under the care of curator Kathy Wright. 
Our collection consists mostly of uniforms, guns, and swords to ordinary, everyday things that women and children were using on the home front. But among these seemingly ordinary objects is one artifact with a deceptively innocent appearance. It is approximately three feet long with a paper mache head. The body is stuffed with cotton and is dressed to look like a young woman of the era. This particular item may look mundane, but it may have played a vital role during one of the nation's most trying times. What is this simple doll? And did it save the lives of countless Confederate troops during the American Civil War? It's the 1800s. Across the South, Union troops are battling Confederate soldiers. Although bullets claim many lives on the battlefield, it's actually the rampant spread of disease and infection that causes two-thirds of all fatalities. Soldiers were exposed to various diseases like malaria. Water often was not clean, so people were drinking in all kinds of bacteria and getting typhoid and dysentery. And one wartime tactic is designed specifically to increase the impact of these illnesses on Southern troops. The Union Blockade, a naval siege which shuts down 12 major ports and nearly 3,500 miles of Confederate coastline. The goal was to essentially strangle the South by cutting off all shipments going into or out of Southern ports. The blockade means that no military or medical supplies can be delivered to Southern troops. For soldiers injured on the battlefield, being cut off from medicine is virtually a death sentence. January 1862. General James Patton Anderson, commander of the Army of Tennessee for the Confederacy, watches helplessly as countless troops fall ill and die. He frequently would write about the suffering of soldiers and in particular the various diseases that they were suffering from. General Anderson is desperate to get his men the medicine they need to survive, so he devises a cunning strategy to save them. If it works, his men might live to fight another day. It's 1862. Infectious diseases such as malaria and dysentery are rife across the battlefields of the Civil War. And when Union troops blockade the South, cutting off their access to medical supplies, tens of thousands of Confederate soldiers' lives are put on the line. Their only hope? Their leader, General James Patton Anderson. What will he do to save their lives? General Anderson realizes that the only way his men will get the medicine they so desperately need is to devise a way of sneaking it past the Union blockade. It was extraordinarily important to come up with deceptive ways to smuggle medication and other supplies across these fluid military lines. So he writes to his wife with a potentially dangerous request. He asks her and his own daughter to smuggle drugs to his men. Women and children seem to have been particularly well-suited for this sort of activity because they were not going to be suspected of smuggling medicine. General Anderson's family starts making frequent visits to the front. And each time they come, his daughter carries this doll, the very one in the collection of the Museum of the Confederacy. The doll was donated to the museum in 1923 by the surviving children of General Anderson. And General Anderson's family makes a startling claim. 
that this very doll was used by Anderson's wife and daughter to smuggle contraband hidden inside its hollow head. In this case, the fact that the doll's head is hollow suggests that there is a large empty cavity that would have been perfect as a hiding place for medication. X-ray technology shows that Nina's head could have possibly carried enough quinine to save 100 troops from diseases like malaria or typhoid fever. Or supply enough morphine to treat the pain and suffering of 1,000 men. Ultimately, over 600,000 people die as a result of the Civil War, two-thirds of which are killed by disease. But Confederate casualties surely would have been higher without the Southern men, women, and children who smuggled medicine to the front lines. But was this little doll part of those clandestine efforts? Future forensic testing for drug residue may reveal the answer. Till then, Nina remains on display, a simple testament to one of America's most painful eras. Washington, D.C. Just a stone's throw from the Washington Monument is the renowned Corcoran Gallery of Art. Founded in 1869, it's one of the oldest museums in the United States. The Corcoran houses breathtaking statues and priceless paintings, such as Frederick Church's Niagara. And amongst the collection is an entire room dedicated to the art of photography. But one composition on the gallery's wall, simple images of a horse trotting, has a unique and storied legacy. At first glance, all the shots seem the same, but a closer examination reveals a slight difference between each one. As Chief Curator Philip Brookman knows, when this entire series was first seen 140 years ago, people were amazed. It brings the horse to life in a way that astonished people. No one had seen this before. So how did this simple set of photographs lead to one of the greatest inventions of all time? 1872, San Francisco. The bustling metropolis is a playground for the rich, and chief among them is California governor and railroad tycoon Leland Stanford, whose tremendous wealth allows him to pursue his favorite pastime. One of his hobbies, his real interests, was horse racing. In an effort to better train his horses, Governor Stanford studies how they walk, trot, and gallop. Most people believe that when running, horses leave at least one hoof in contact with the ground at all times. But after years of careful observation, Stanford makes a controversial claim. He felt that somewhere in the gait of this horse, it actually levitates off the ground. Other people said, no, that's impossible. How could a horse move with all four of its hoofs off the ground at the same time? It would be like the horse was flying. Some call him crazy, but according to legend, Stanford is so confident that he puts his money where his mouth is. It's been said that Leland Stanford actually makes a bet, $25,000, which at the time is a phenomenal fortune. And he bet somebody else that a horse does run with four of its hoofs off the ground. But in order to prove his belief, he has to rely on a new technology that had never been used for this purpose. Stanford had the idea that he could use photography as a way to actually capture and stop the motion of a running horse. He then hired a man who was one of the most famous photographers in San Francisco, a landscape photographer by the name of Edward Moybridge. 
Moybridge gets to work at Stanford's ranch. But capturing an image of a horse in motion is no easy task. When Moybridge was asked to actually capture a still picture of something moving as fast as a trotting horse, the technology didn't exist for him to do that. A single shot might not capture the precise moment needed to prove Stanford's theory. So Moybridge approaches the mechanics of the project in a new and remarkable way. In order to analyze motion, one needs to see a sequence of images, one after another, that show actually the trajectory of how something moves through space. Moybridge sets up a series of 12 fast-motion cameras along the perimeter of Stanford's horse track, each one rigged with a long, thin thread. The belief is that a galloping horse will break the threads one by one, releasing the shutters of each camera. It's an ingenious idea. But will it work? In the mid-19th century, conventional wisdom has it that as a horse gallops, it always leaves at least one hoof in contact with the ground. But in 1872, California governor and racing enthusiast Leland Stanford makes the controversial claim that a galloping horse actually lifts all four of its legs completely off the ground. And to prove it, he hires photographer Edward Moybridge to capture a series of images of a horse in motion. So can Moybridge's photos settle a bet? With 12 high-speed cameras set up around Governor Stanford's racetrack, Moybridge sets his plan in motion. And amazingly, when the photographs are developed, the sequential images of the horse galloping are all in focus. And they prove that Leland Stanford is right. In the third frame here, you can see he has all four of her hoofs off the ground. Thanks to Moybridge's ingenuity, Governor Stanford wins his legendary bet. But the story doesn't end there. What started as a simple wager sparks an idea that will eventually change the world. The photographer decides to take his motion study one step further. He began to understand how if you can project these images on the wall one after another and project them quickly enough, uh, they begin to look like they're moving. In 1879, he transfers his horse photos onto a glass disc and builds a wooden housing. It's designed to spin and project images onto a screen, and he gives his new invention a name. Moybridge called it Zoopraxiscope. The Zoopraxiscope is the world's first motion picture projector, and Moybridge enhances his invention in another exciting way, with a live audience. An enraptured public is eager to pay to see moving pictures on Moybridge's curious device. That is truly the foundation for cinema. I mean, we wouldn't have movies, or we wouldn't have television without the cinematic technology that emanates from this kind of spark of light that comes from this crazy notion that you could actually stop time, stop the motion of a moving horse, and then put it back in motion. And these photographs, carefully preserved at the Corcoran Museum of Art, document the invention of the moving image and the dawn of cinema. Preserved fish, mummified remains, and fossilized reptiles. 
These are just a few of the creatures, large and small, on display at Philadelphia's Academy of Natural Sciences. In the bowels of the climate-controlled storage facility of the paleontology department is a set of artifacts that associate curator Ted Deschler knows once belonged to a monstrous beast. Each of these three are claws, the largest of which is about six inches in length. When you look at these fossils, the first thing you think is, wow, this would have been a really large animal. And those claws would have really been able to rip into its prey. What mysterious creature are these massive claws from? And can it still be found roaming the wilds of North America? It's 1796. Deep in a cave in the Blue Ridge Mountains, on the edge of what is now West Virginia, U.S. Army Colonel John Stewart is supervising a crew of miners digging for saltpeter. But instead of unearthing precious minerals, the men make an utterly astonishing discovery. In that soft sediment, they turned up these amazing claws. They were probably fearful of what they saw in front of them. They had no idea what they were. But Colonel Stewart thinks he knows someone who might. So he sends the remains to his friend, avid fossil collector and founding father, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was one of the first people to look at prehistoric remains, particularly things from North America, and try to compare them to find out, is this thing anything that we know about today? Might it still be living somewhere? Fascinated by these giant claws, he sets out to determine what animal they belong to. He compared them to illustrations, to bones that he might have seen in the past, and tried to find what they most looked like. He even tried to judge the scale of the animal. How big would this have been based on the bones that they found in the cave? After poring over the biology of large predatory species, Jefferson arrives at an astonishing conclusion. He came up with this theory that it was a lion-like animal and that it weighed as much as 2,000 pounds. The name Jefferson gives this beast is only fitting. He calls it megalonyx, a Greek word meaning giant claw. The remarkable finding is of groundbreaking significance. It seems to provide proof of the existence of an undiscovered animal species so enormous that based on the scale of these claws, it could be three times as big as an African lion and maybe even as large as a mastodon. Even more exciting, after researching further, Jefferson has reason to believe that this gigantic creature is still living and roaming the wilds of North America. It's 1796. A set of giant fossilized claws are discovered in a cave in Western Virginia. Vice President and avid scientist Thomas Jefferson believes they belong to a 2,000-pound lion-like cat that still prowls the wilds of North America. He names it Megalonyx. But is Jefferson right? Does this beast really exist? There were stories from the frontier about lion-like animals that may have terrorized them just outside of the light of the fire at night. And there were cave paintings from Native Americans 
that seem to have very large cat-like animals. But just two years later, in 1798, new evidence surfaces that casts doubt on Jefferson's assertion that the colossal predator is in fact a lion. A new fossil was discovered in South America called Megatherium that is related to the sloths of South America. The Megatherium's claws bear a striking resemblance to Jefferson's Megalonyx fossils. So could the two animals be one and the same? Half a century later, in 1850, the remains of another immense animal, eerily similar to those unearthed by Colonel John Stewart back in 1796, are found in Kentucky. This nearly complete skeleton finally gives paleontologists greater insight into the mighty creature first described by Thomas Jefferson. It confirmed the presence of an animal that we still call megalonyx today, but with finding newer, more complete skeletons, we were able to understand more about the animal and indeed understand that it's a giant ground sloth. It were huge animals, thousand pounds or more. Slow moving, shuffling on the ground, peg-like teeth for grinding plant material, sort of a blunt snout. It was a very strange animal. And these powerful six-inch claws, thought by Jefferson to cut down prey, serve a very different purpose. They use these huge claws for stripping branches off of trees for their herbivorous diet. Despite being a very different animal to the gigantic lion Thomas Jefferson originally envisioned, this sloth species is eventually named Megalonyx jeffersoni in his honor. Although this mighty Ice Age beast is now known to have gone extinct over 9,000 years ago, it is revered to this day as one of the most wide-ranging giant ground sloths in history. And these immense claws at Philadelphia's Academy of Natural Sciences stand as tangible proof of one of the most fantastic creatures to have ever stalked the Earth. From a misshapen bust to twisted shrapnel, a revolutionary photograph to a legendary homicide. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.